It's good to see everyone today. Glad everybody's alive and vibrant and interested and looking forward to studying this morning. At least I'm going to assume that, so uh, we'll get started on that note. We'll jump right into our lesson. We're going to be looking at Jeremiah chapter 12. Jeremiah chapter 12, and if you know the story of Jeremiah, you know that he was a, a faithful man of God, a prophet sent by God to the people who were left behind uh, as the first group went into Babylonian captivity, Jeremiah was left behind. And Jeremiah's message was to warn them about the consequences about disobedience. And what ended up happening with Jeremiah was that he was pretty much roughed up. His own people mistreated him. And so as we get to chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, he says, Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Thou hast planted them, yea, they have taken root, they grow, yea, they bring forth fruit. Thou art near in their mouth and far from their reins. But thou, O Lord, knowest me, thou hast seen me and tried my heart toward thee. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter, prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long shall the land mourn? and the herbs of every field wither. For the wickedness of them that dwell therein, the beasts are consumed and the birds, because they said, He shall not see our last end. So Jeremiah had this complaint. He begins his message, in effect, by saying, I know you're righteous, and I know that you care for us, and I know that it's okay for me to ask these questions. And so the first question that he deals with is a recognition of his relationship to God. I know that you're righteous and I know that you understand everything. I know that you've got an answer. And so that's why I'm seeking you. And he says, in effect, I know that everything that is from you and of you is good. So my problem is, why are these wicked people here? And why do they continue to prosper? Why am I looking out and I'm seeing that the wicked are doing okay? You know, we have this sense of judgment in thinking about our service to God, that in serving God, everything's going to be good for me, and the wicked, they're going to have an awful time. But then we deal with life as it is, and it's not that way. Uh, sometimes good people are mistreated. They have lots of problems in life. They are constantly bowed down with the troubles that beset them, and evil people have no care in the world. And so that, in effect, is what Jeremiah is saying. Why is it that way? He also understood that God allowed them to exist, that God's the one that has that power. I know that you, in effect, have put them here. He says, thou hast planted them, in verse 2. So I know that you made provision for them. And so he says, seeing that you're good, seeing that you've made provision for all things, seeing that these people are wicked, he says, why don't you take vengeance on them? Why don't you remove them? Why do I have to deal with these people? And God's response is probably not the response that Jeremiah was thinking he was going to get. We pray to God, we plead with God, we have problems, and we say, please take these problems away. And when God responds in a way that we weren't thinking, Sometimes we forget all of those things that we're talking. I know you're righteous. I know that you're fair. I know that you're good. And so when God responds in a way that we weren't expecting, 
We forget that God is still righteous, God is still fair, God is still good, so there must be a reason for doing that. His response to Jeremiah was is found in verse 5, and it says, If thou hast run with the footmen, and they have wearied thee, then how canst thou contend with horses? And if in the land of peace wherein thou trustest, they wearied thee, then how wilt thou do in the swelling of Jordan? In effect, God says, You think it's bad now. You ain't seen nothing yet. That's not the answer that we expect to get from God. So we want to think about that today. We want to think about that concept of running with the footman. The first thing we want to consider in our lesson today is just dealing with the problem of wickedness. The concern for God's justice against wickedness is a common theme throughout all His Word. We stand as the servants of God. We have dedicated our life to knowing God's Word and to applying God's Word in our life and having an expectation of a certain outcome. And then we see that there's wickedness in the world. And it afflicts us. It it hurts us to see that there's wickedness. Who among us isn't frustrated by looking at the world today, even our own society, maybe even our own town, and we say, there's just so much evil out there. Well, there's a concern in thinking about God's justice. It isn't right. This is not right what's happening. But the fact of the matter is, every place where God's people have been, they've been afflicted. So we think about God's righteous servant Job, uh, looking at, say, Job chapter 21 in verses 7 through 13. What does Job here say? Wherefore do the wicked live, become old, yea, are mighty in power? Their seed is established in their sight with them, their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, neither is the rod of God upon them. Their bull gendereth and faileth not, their cow calveth and casteth not her calf. They send forth their little ones like a flock, and their children dance. They take the timbrel and harp and rejoice at the sound of the organ. They spend their days in wealth, and the moment go down to the grave. He's making it sound like this is what we all want. Prosperity, goodness in life. To be able to see your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, to see them grow up, to see them prosper. And then, when you look at verse 13, he says, and in a moment. Now, contrast this to what Job is dealing with. In a moment, they get to go down to the grave. They don't have to suffer. They go like that. So, you contrast that against the righteous, like Job, who suffer. And we, we have this sense that things just aren't fair. How is it that wicked people who truly are wicked, you know, they shake their fist at God, they don't care for anything spiritual, they use the Lord's name in vain, anything evil you can think about they're involved with, and their life seems to be wonderful. And here we are, we're serving God, and our life is not, quote-unquote, wonderful. wonderful. So, You look at it during the time of the patriarchs. Then you consider the situation with respect to the nation of Israel. Uh, The psalmist had this to say in Psalm uh, 73 in verses 1 through 9. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped, for I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compassed them about as a chain. Violence covered them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness, and they have more heart, uh, more than heart could wish. They're corrupt, 
speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. So he's given this image here of them looking up to the grandeur of the heavens while their tongue is gouging out the earth. That's just another way of saying they they speak base things. They have nothing. Their eyes see one thing. Their mouth says something else. They're hypocrites is what it is. So here the psalmist is looking at this situation and is recognizing the fact that it just doesn't seem fair. And even when you deal with another one of the prophets, Habakkuk, in Habakkuk chapter 1, he, he begins with this concept of, if we can use the term in a very general sense, a complaint. He says in verse 2 of chapter 1, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou wilt not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. So, when we look at the world in our day, what we see is a pattern that hasn't changed. And, and maybe that concerns people in thinking about that. But one of the things that we learn is that wickedness has always existed. And part of our relationship with God is first recognizing that and, in effect, learning to deal with it. So... What God is responding to Jeremiah, in effect, is telling him, things are tough. I know things are tough. But things are no tougher for you than they've ever been for anyone. And God's message to us today would pretty much be the same thing. It's not a message we want to hear, but it's a message we need to hear. We're not any special than anyone else who has ever come along. We are valuable to God, and we are special in His sight. And so God's going to treat us like He's always treated His people. And if we trust in God and we believe God is righteous and we believe God is good, then we need to look for the answer beyond just the shock of the moment when God says, yeah, it's tough. Guess what? It may be getting tougher. So we next recognize the fact that that wickedness is not necessarily going to go away. God is not going to wipe off the face of the earth. The question that man has always asked is, why does God allow wickedness to continue? And there's one simple reason. Because if God removed wickedness, there'd be nobody here. You and I wouldn't be here. If God removed wickedness, we wouldn't be here. See, we have a value system. And our value system is there are these things that are wicked and there are these things that don't really matter. You know, I might have told a lie, but you know, that's not as bad as adultery. Or someone says, well, I may have committed fornication, but it's not as bad as murder. So we have this value system. And when we are deceptive and we don't tell the truth or we out and out lie or we don't do the things we're supposed to do or we do things we're not supposed to do, we look at that value system and we say it's not as bad as. But we look at passages like Romans chapter 3, verse 23, where it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means you and I at some point in time were sinners. If we are not children of God, we are still sinners. And maybe the world will look at you and say, you're not that bad. You're a nice person. You give to charities. You help the poor. You, you're, you're nice to your neighbors. You're a good person. God looks at you and God says, if you're not my child, you're a sinner. You are in rebellion against me. And so those that sin deserve the consequence of sin. And again, looking at the book of Romans, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. 
So if God looks upon the face of the earth and God says, I am going to cleanse the earth of all wickedness, sin is wickedness. Every time someone has sinned, then the consequence should be God wipes the earth away from that person. There's nobody there. You and I could not have a life if God removed all wickedness. So one of the lessons we, we need to learn early on is that wickedness is going to continue. Now, it won't continue forever because Jesus has told us that a time is going to come when wickedness will be removed from the face of the earth. So in Matthew chapter 13, in one of those accounts we have of the parable, uh, of dealing of the parable of the sower and, and the scattering of the seed, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13, uh, beginning in verse 24, he says, Consider this parable. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which soweth good seed in his field while men slept. His enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the household came and said unto him, Sirs, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servant said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles, and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn." So he says in verse 38, the field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the world. And then verse 41, the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and they which do iniquity. So God has a time frame. And God's time frame is the end. I'm going to take care of everything at the end. It's all going to be equaled out. All of those evil things, in effect, will be taken care of. But not now. And, and there's a reason not now. And here we have it that the wheat may be taken with the tares. One of the things I think about is that sometimes it's hard to tell who's good and who's bad. Who's weak and who's strong. There may be Christians who are going through a difficult time that God knows they're going to come out of that time. But during that difficult time, maybe they've sinned. They've yet to repent of that sin. God knows they're going to repent of that sin. If we remove them from the face of the earth, then the opportunity to repent isn't there. And the eventual outcome that God knows is going to be there will not be there for them. Consequently, there could be some people who are good. And the end result of their life has not yet come. When you think of passages like Ezekiel chapter 18 where God says, the soul that sinneth it shall die, but then he also talks about the fact if the righteous man continues in his righteousness, he'll be saved. And if the, if the unrighteous man repents of his unrighteousness and becomes righteous, he'll be saved. So God says, I'm giving everybody an opportunity. And that opportunity is in his time frame. So we look at passages um, such as Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The question that is in Second Peter chapter 3 that Peter is dealing with is really the same question that Jeremiah is dealing with. And that is, why hasn't God done what God says he's going to do? And Peter's response is, because God's time frame is not your time frame. We, we very much live in a society that is now. We want everything now. Fast food. You know, uh, I, I'm at an age now where I'll be, I'll be 60 in January. No, that's not as old as some people, but it's sure older than when I was 19, you know. 
Uh, I look at things a whole lot differently as someone approaching 60 than I did when I was younger and didn't worry about the future and didn't have much to look back on. It's easy to look back 40 years and say, wow, you know, things have changed in that period of time. And I remember when fast food was going into a restaurant and getting something in a paper bag or a paper sack and walking out. There were no such things as drive through Then we had drive through Then, you know, you have, we're going to get you your food in three minutes. And even today, you know, I was, I was in line somewhere and I was timing myself. And I thought, wow, I've been five minutes here. I ought to go online and I ought to complain about this. And I just thought to myself, you're kidding. Five minutes and you can't sit here and wait for a couple of tacos? And I thought, yeah, that's what we all do. We all think five minutes is too much. My time is valuable because I've got to go home and watch TV or I've got to go home and get on the Internet or I've got to go home and waste more time because we think we are in control of time and we are not. A week ago Wednesday, a brother came uh, to Wednesday night Bible study like he always does. Walked in the door, shook hands with them, just you know, real jovial, liked this guy a whole lot. Didn't think anything of it. Eight o'clock the next morning, his daughter-in-law calls. Mom wanted me to let you know that Reggie died this morning. I said, would you say that again? I said, Reggie died. I said, what happened? He said, died in his sleep. What shock. This guy wasn't sick. He wasn't ready to die. He died in his sleep. We think we're the masters of time. We think things should happen exactly this way and unfold that way. And, and what does God tell us when you look at a passage like 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9? The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We look at the world, we have this value system, and we say these people are not worthy. And God says, wait a minute, I get to decide who's worthy and who's not worthy. Jeremiah has already said, God, I know you're righteous and I know you're good and I know you're fair. Okay, we've established that. Then you're going to have to trust me that I know the best way for things to work out. So when this answer is given to Jeremiah, we recognize the fact that God is aware of wickedness. Wickedness has been there. God's going to take care of things, but He takes care of things in His time frame. And we should be glad of that. If God destroyed everyone who had sinned, you and I, in effect, would not be here. So, in thinking now about the problem of tribulation, obviously the consequence of wickedness is that there's going to be some suffering and we're going to be those who have to deal, in effect, with that suffering. That's where we get to this concept of what is fair and what is unfair in thinking about our life. Okay, I agree, wickedness exists and God's going to take care of it. But don't let me have to deal with it. Let somebody else deal with it. And so we find that part of the, the consequence in dealing with wickedness is that we're going to deal with tribulation. When God calls Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, He says, I have heard and seen the affliction of my people which are in e Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters and I know their sorrow. So, at one time, the people of Israel were respected in Egypt. During the time of Moses, they were, excuse me, during the time of Joseph, they were respected because of Joseph. But then, a couple of hundred years pass, Pharaoh has risen up that did not know Joseph, the Israelites have multiplied, and there are those people that come to the Pharaoh and say, there's too many of them. 
We're going to have to watch them. They may rise up and take over. So what are we going to do? Because there's this envy, because there's this jealousy, maybe even greed over the, the land that they have, these people, in effect, are going to suffer. And so we find in the very beginning of Exodus that it's these evil men who come and they bring that trial and tribulation upon the people. Verse 8 of Exodus chapter 1, it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto the people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass that when there faileth out, falleth out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Now, I don't know how they were mightier because they didn't have an army. They didn't have weapons. The Egyptian government had an army. They had trained soldiers. They had chariots. They had their, they had their warriors. But what he says is they're, they're more and they're mightier. You know, one of the things that sin loves to deal with is fear. Sin loves to put you on the defensive and cause you to fear something. They may do something to you. They may say something. So you need to say it first or you need to do it first. And that's in effect what, what Pharaoh says to the people. They may do this. Let's have a preemptive strike. Let's be the ones that take control of things. So what ends up happening is that there is affliction. The, the word goes out to go ahead and to kill the children, to kill specifically the male children. But it says in verse 15, uh, The king of Egypt spake to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of one was Shifra, and the name of the other was Pua. And he said, When ye do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them upon the stools, if it be a son, then ye shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then shall, uh, they shall, then shall she live. But they don't do that. Thankfully. So here is this horrible situation that unfolds. And as a parent, I can't think of anything that would be more heart-wrenching than to lose a child. You bring that child into the world, you, you long for that child, you pray for that child. Here is a situation where this guy is planning to kill these children. That's going to be the remedy to dealing with a nation of people. That's real trial and real tribulation. But the fact of the matter is, all God's faithful have had to deal with trials and tribulation. It, it doesn't take long to go through the book of Hebrews and looking at Hebrews chapter 11, and we find Abraham had to deal with that. Abraham was asked by God, leave your home, leave your family, leave your surroundings, go to this place, I'm not telling you where it's at yet. You know, we get to choose, we get to pick. If I want to go here and I want to do this, we get to pick all those things. Here's a faithful man of God, and God says to him, I want you to get up, and I want you to go. I'll tell you where you're going later. Leave what you've known. Leave what you're familiar with. Leave what you like. You know, it's one thing to go and leave somewhere if you don't like where you're at. What if you like where you're at? What if you're happy there? You know, we have this dream in our country of owning our own home, having nice neighbors. What if all that's true? But then God says, well, you need to leave all that. You need to give that up. I've got something better for you. I'm not going to tell you where it's at. You just need to trust me, get up and go. So we have this situation in dealing with Abraham. And what did he do? He did as God asked him. Even though there was personal suffering on his behalf. In thinking about Moses, there, there's a similar situation in thinking about Moses. In Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 24, it says, by faith, 
Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect under the recompense of reward. Moses had what a lot of people want. Position, power, influence, riches. People to back me up. And God said, now against that, you're going to have reproach, you're going to lose your esteem, you're going to lose your place. I'm going to put you among a people who will do nothing but complain and bicker and moan and whine. Okay, which one do I want? Do I want to be with these people who are going to back me up and I'm going to be able to enjoy all of the things I want to enjoy? Or do I go with these people who are weak, sometimes selfish, constantly complaining? And Moses made the choice knowing that these were God's people. He gave up what a lot of people strive for in life so that he could have the things that nobody, in effect, wants. And, of course, it's not difficult for us to think about our Lord in, in thinking about his being on the cross, suffering the cross. I'm not going to ask you to think too deeply about it, but in verse 2 he says, Looking unto Jesus, Hebrews 12, verse 2, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down on the right hand of the, uh, of the throne of God. When you think about Jesus on the cross, I would like to think that you and I would say at certain, a certain point, that's enough. Okay? An hour, that's enough. Two hours, that's enough. Three hours, is that enough? You know, God didn't say, I'm going to put him up there for a limited period of time. It says he endured it. He experienced the fullness of all that suffering. The, the beating that went along with it, the flailing of his back open, the, the difficulty of trying to cause himself to breathe, that every movement of his body would be an aching pain, the embarrassment, shame of that uh, type of torture in and of itself, but the embarrassment of being there and looking and seeing at everybody making fun of you. They shot out the lip to him, it said. You know, there's a sense of not only physical abuse, but emotional abuse. And God did not put any of that aside, he experienced the fullness of it up to and including death. So the concept of tribulation and affliction, God's people have always had to deal with it. And Jesus tells us it's going to be us too. In John chapter 15, he says, as they've treated me, they are going to treat you. If they have not listened to my voice, then they won't listen to your voice. In John chapter 15, beginning in verse 16, he said, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordered you, ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he shall give it you. These things I command you, that ye love one another. And then he goes on to say, If the world hate you, Ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. We should not be surprised when the world mistreats us. We should not be surprised when the world, in effect, despises us. You know, we always talk about the idea that the world is quote-unquote tolerant. The world is only tolerant of its own. And that's what Jesus said. If you do what the world says, it'll leave you alone. If you don't, it's going to afflict you. And so, all throughout history, we note that God's people have had to deal with trials and tribulations. Therefore, you and I are no different from any of God's faithful. Trials and tribulation are a part of life. 
what is it then that God is trying to tell us in looking at uh, Jeremiah chapter 12 and, and verses 5 and 6? Uh, what was his message in effect to Jeremiah? I don't know. I have no idea what the message was that I've been racking my brains. Uh, no. I think in a very simple sense, what, what God, in effect, was saying to Jeremiah was, the trials and tribulations brought by men are nothing compared to the wrath of God. Another way, in effect, we can put it is, if you can't deal with minor afflictions, how are you going to be able to deal with major tribulations? If someone saying something unkind about you offends you, what are you going to do when they actually persecute you? When you look at the world and you see what men can do, one of the things that God is saying is, what men can do is nothing compared to what God can do. If you're going to weaken and give up because of what men do, how do you think you're going to stand on the day of judgment? Whatever Jeremiah was experiencing in dealing with the concept of footmen was nothing compared to what was to come, the idea of horses. So running with men versus running with horses, that's an unequal comparison. You know, the fastest that a man can run is, what, 10 miles an hour, I think? I'm, I'm not sure. Okay, 20 miles an hour. Yeah, I've done that before. Uh, 20 miles an hour. Well, we measure a car's performance by horsepower. So that'll tell you something. If, you know, if men could be fast, we would be measuring cars by manpower. We, we measure work by manpower. We measure performance by horsepower. 250 horsepower. That, that sounds impressive. Uh, so God is saying, here's this majestic animal I've created. It's got four feet. You're dealing with people with two feet. This thing could run you over. It can go for four or five hours plowing a field, dragging someone behind it. So we think about this particular, and I do think it's a majestic animal, beautiful animals. But God was saying, in effect, the power that exists in them, in contrast to the power of a man, you're dealing with men. I could create something a little bit uh, stronger than men. How, how would you, in effect, deal with that? And so we look at the problems that exist in our lifetime, and that's nothing compared to eternal punishment. The affliction that we're going to deal with in this life is nothing compared to eternal. This small time span is nothing in contrast to the great weight of eternity that is ever before us. And then he goes on to say, the problems that are happening to you are actually happening during a time of peace. Verse 5, If thou hast run with the footmen, and they have wearied thee, then how canst thou contend with horses? And if in the land of peace, wherein thou trustest, they weary thee, then how wilt thou do in the swelling of Jordan? I think the swelling of Jordan is simply an overflow. He's saying, if when things come one at a time, in a very orderly way, you can't deal with it, how are you going to deal with it when things just flood upon you? How are you going to deal when you're overwhelmed? Yeah, we, we look at our life and we recognize that things are not necessarily fair and things don't always go the way we want them to go. But we serve a God who knows all of that. And we serve a God who knows the future. We look at the moment and we measure the moment by the future. God measures the future by eternity. You know, uh, we look at a ruler and we're looking head on. And we see this little period of time, and God sees everything all at once. And so he knows that as things unfold, they're going to change. 
times may get worse. We're looking at our country today, and we're looking at the upcoming election, and we recognize that there is a, a, a foreboding, that there is an anxiety. Things could get much worse. We could be looking back on 2016 as the good old days. Everybody does that. I remember when I was a kid, you know, I remember this, I remember... You know, I grew up in a town that was a horrible town. Lots of homes were shut up and boarded up. And as kids, we used to go play in abandoned homes. I've stepped on a nail in an abandoned home before. I've I've played in in run-down houses before. That was the good old days in some respects. I was free. You know, I didn't have any cares and concerns. As a 12 or 13 year old, I could get on the bus and I could go downtown Boston or get on the trolley car and I could go and I could go to the public library and I could do all those things by myself. I would never let my kids go into a major city by themselves. No way. I don't even like to hear that as adults they're going on a trip somewhere. But I used to do that. And I don't look at the rundown homes and I don't look at the depression and the, the poverty of the, of the mid to late 60s. I look at that as the good old days. My parents certainly didn't as they struggled to make ends meet and other people who were out of work. We may be looking back in time. The future may hold that which is worse. And I think part of what God is, is telling us is that He's not going to remove the trials of today because the trials of today are going to prepare us for the tribulations of the future. That things may get worse. I think one of the reasons that, and I'm expressing a personal opinion here, and I want to be perfectly clear on that. I think one of the reasons that the greatest generation was the greatest generation was because they came through the Depression. They were steeled by having to discipline themselves just to exist And then after the Second World War, we move into a period of prosperity. And now we're paying for that because we don't want to discipline anyone. We want what we want when we want it. We want that fast food. We want it here. We want it hot. We want it exactly the way I want it. If you put pickles on that, I'm going to come back and I'm going to complain. And so we don't deal with self-discipline of saying, I'm just going to take the pickles off and throw them away. It's not a big deal. Yeah, they did. They put onion on it. I'll throw the onion away too. We're not self-disciplined. We're not dealing with those afflictions. We're saying, put them away. I don't want to deal with... You look at our society today. What have we done? We've said, I want to be able to do what I want to do and the consequences I want removed. God is telling Jeremiah, you need to deal with these things now so that you'll know how to deal with tougher things later on. Isn't that what we do with our kids when we teach them the right thing about, you need to deal with that. Okay, that's a, a difficult situation. You need to deal with it. Mom and dad are not going to step in and make things good for you with respect to that. You're going to have to learn to deal with that. We will help you. We will counsel you. We will advise you on how to deal with it. You're having a tough time with this class. Okay, we're going to study with you. We're going to give you the information. But you're still going to have to learn that information. And you're still going to have to apply that information. We're not going to go to the teacher and complain that it's too tough and that he or she needs to do something easier for you. But that's exactly what's happening in our society. That teacher's rotten. Get us another teacher. That, that person, I don't like that person. Get another person. What we're saying, in effect, is I want my life to be easy. I want my life to be comfortable. And I want everybody to agree that that's the way it should be. And what God, in effect, was saying to Jeremiah was, no. You need the problems of this life to prepare you for the bigger problems 
that in effect are going to come. And so, one of the things he was telling Jeremiah was, it's not just your countrymen, it's even people of your own family, even thy brethren, the house of thy father, are going to deal treacherous. Yeah, when, when it's someone I don't like, that's rough. What about when it's someone of my own family? You know, these were people that were experiencing real pain and suffering and, and going into captivity. What if someone in my family says, well, I, I, can, I can save our family if we give Jeremiah up. I can save the rest of my family because they just want Jeremiah. He's that spokesman. He's causing trouble. It would be better for all of us if we get rid of him. Then he finds that out. That's, that's real difficulty that, that you have to deal with. We, we have to recognize in thinking about God, what does this say about God? God reminds us that He knows what we're capable of. He created us. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, in the beginning, God said, let us create man in our image. So God knows exactly what we're capable of having made us. God reveals to Jeremiah that there is a belief that we can deal with problems and overcome them. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to suffer above that which you are able, but will with the temptation make a way available that you may escape. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And we'll have to walk around it. David said, I'm walking through. God is telling me, I've got to walk through it. And I've got to get to the other side. And God is confident, in effect, that I can do that. He's fully aware of what is happening in life, and God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And so we're reminded that, that it's God's time frame and, and not our time frame. In, in Jeremiah chapter 12, uh, 13, in verses 12 through 14, Therefore thou shalt speak unto them this word, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Every bottle shall be filled with wine, and they shall say unto thee, Do we not certainly know that every bottle shall be filled with wine? Then shalt thou say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will fill all the inhabitants of this land, even the kings that sit upon David's throne, and the priests and the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, with drunkenness. I will dash them one against another, even the fathers and the sons together, saith the Lord. I will not pity, nor spare, nor have mercy, but destroy them. He says... Jeremiah, these people that don't like you, these people that are causing you trouble, I want you to go to them and I want you to tell them things are going to get worse. I've been giving them a message they didn't like and they mistreated me. And he says, now, Jeremiah, you're giving them a worse message. The worst message is, I'm going to destroy you. You can imagine. You know, if people don't like you with a little message, what are they going to do when there's a big message? You know, what ends up happening, you see in the denominational world, the people that are preaching, quote-unquote, what they believe is the gospel, they don't preach the big message. They don't like the idea when you start talking about the cross, people feel bad. So they talk about God's love. When God says, I want you to demonstrate my love by telling them they need to repent. Oh, well, if you preach repentance, makes people feel bad. And they don't like that. If they don't like what I'm preaching now, don't preach repentance. And so that's what happens. And what God was saying to Jeremiah, he's saying, I'm not only telling you to tell them what's going to happen. You tell them that if they don't turn from their ways, I will destroy them. And so that's what ends up happening. The fact of the matter is, God does not reveal when these things are going to happen. He tells us that, in effect, they are going to happen. So in thinking about us today, 
There's much we can see in our country that causes us to think that evil reigns, yet we live in relative peace. You and I can do what we want. We can go where we want to go. If you decide you want to take off this afternoon and get in your vehicle and drive somewhere, you can do it. No one's going to stop you. There's no soldiers at the city gate trying to keep you from doing anything. We live in in a lifestyle that's still envied throughout the world. People are pushing to get into our country. We must deal with these light afflictions. God will not remove them from us. Homosexuality, uh, adulterous marriages, uh, all the things that are going on in our society today, we're going to have to learn to deal with them in a biblical way that we might keep ourselves pure for God and deal with bigger problems that may be coming in the future. Small tribulations prepare us. They teach us patience and how to deal with more difficult ones. And so God was saying to Jeremiah, learn to deal with the footmen before the horses come along. And of course, it all begins with our willingness to imitate Jesus. He is our perfect example. He is our only example. I appreciate your listening this morning. I hope I didn't go uh, too, too long over.